I'm Mike Kozer, and this is Lost Ballparks, a podcast that takes you on a journey to the golden age of baseball's Lost Ballparks, as told by the players, broadcasters, and fans who were there, and who are here now to give detailed firsthand accounts of what it was like to sit in the seats on a summer afternoon at Ebbets Field, what it was like to pitch at the polo grounds, stand in the batter's box at Forbes Field, walk through the gates at Comiskey Park with transistor radio in hand. Welcome to Lost Ballparks. Join us now for another Brooklyn ball game here at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, USA. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. This is Chuck Thompson with Bill O'Donnell from Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Here we are back at the Polo Grounds in New York City. Yes, the start of things. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shape or two throughout the evening. Our guest today on Lost Ballparks, Hall of Fame pitcher, Baltimore Oriole, Jim Palmer. Palmer won 268 games in his big league career. He appeared in six World Series, won three. The only Oriole that was a part of all three World Championships was a three-time Cy Young Award winner, four-time Gold Glove winner. He won at least 20 games in eight different seasons and was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame with Joe Morgan in 1990. Jim Palmer, thank you for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. So one of your first Major League Baseball games that you ever attended, I think I've got this right, was in 1954 at Old Yankee Stadium. Prior to that, you'd only watched games on a black and white television at home. So describe that experience walking into Yankee Stadium for the first time. You have to understand in 1954, uh, New York had three Major League ball clubs. And, you know, you had the Yankees in the Bronx and then the Giants up at the Polo Ground with Willie Mays. You had Mantle and had DiMaggio. I mean, some of the greatest players ever that played for the Yankees. And then if you went across the bridges and you went over to Brooklyn, you had the, the Boys of Summer with Duke Snyder, their center fielder. So What a time to be alive, like to, to be a kid growing up in New York in the 50s. So the first game, was it a, a day game, night game? It was a Tuesday night. My dad, I don't know how he did. You know, he's in the dress business. So somebody must have said, hey, do you want to take uh, Jimmy to the <laughs> to the Yankee games? And that was my favorite team. I mean, I had three choices, but I love the Yankees. When you've never been to a ballpark and you go to a night game and you walk up that tunnel, you don't realize for the first time how green the grass is. And it was glistening, playing the Indians in 1954. They broke my heart because I think they won the most games ever. Right. That's the World Series where Mays makes the great catch off the bat. It works about 460 feet out in right center field of the polo grounds. So it was a great series if you were a Giant fan. But if you were a Yankee fan and your team had gotten beat, very traumatic summer, and then all of a sudden they get swept by the Giants. You're a little bit disappointed, but I think it was Vic Rash. He was pitching against early win who ended up in the Hall of Fame for the Indians. But the Yankees won. That was the first time I ever went there, and I actually got an autographed ball with the the Yankees uh, ball club on it. Do you still have that ball? No, you know, hey, when you run out of baseballs on a Saturday morning, you'll go to any length to do that. Well, it wasn't that long after, and you could have all the baseballs you wanted because you're the one playing at Yankee Stadium with some of these all-time greats that you grew up watching. You know, I mean, I saw Mantle hit his 500th home run off of Stu Miller. You were at that game. Wow. Yeah, I was at that game. You know, he had a changeup. Stu was a great changeup pitcher, you know, one of the best relievers I ever saw. May 14th, 1967. And Jim, your Orioles are at Old Yankee Stadium. Your teammate Stu Miller on the mound. Mickey Mantle at the plate, and the late Jerry Coleman on the call. Melanger, Johnson, and Powell all to the right of second base. Hard to get a ground ball between them. All by himself at third base, Brooks Robinson. Three balls and two strikes. Here's the payoff pitch. This is it! Here it goes! It's out of here! Several years ago, I asked you on Twitter, what was your favorite ballpark to pitch in? And you replied, 
Old Yankee Stadium, you said that you remembered a game in 1965 when you were 19 that the bases were loaded and you struck out Mickey Mantle. 11 years earlier, you're in the stands, a fan, watching your hero Mickey Mantle play, and now you're striking him out with the bases loaded at the exact same ballpark. Well, I mean, that's kind of a, a life lesson for, I think, anybody that loves baseball. You know, I mean, I go there at nine years old because I like the Yankees. You know, first time you've ever seen how green the grass is. You know, you dream about playing there. I mean, I always thought I was going to be a Yankee because I signed a year before the uh, the draft, so I could have signed with anybody. Right. And, you know, I mean, as it turns out, of course, you know, the Orioles, 60s, 70s, and 80s, I think best winning percentage in baseball. But I always just thought I'd go to Yankee Stadium. But so when I got to pitch there, and again, you know, Mantle was at the end of his career. Elston Howard was one of the guys that I struck out with the bases loaded. Um, he had been the most valuable player in 64. But I threw high fastballs. And, you know, if you look at analytics, you know, in, in, the, in the year 2021 or now 2022, everybody's telling you, well, you got to have that good spin rate on that four-seam fastball. Well, I had that. Uh, they didn't tell us that, but the hitters told me that they have trouble hitting the high fastball. Now you bring it down a little bit, you get into a hitter's count, you know, things change a little bit. There were a lot of guys that gave you trouble that because they hit the high fastball, but most of the guys, they would see that pitch and the Yankees were in this grouping and they try to hit it and they just couldn't catch up. By the way, even though you were a Yankees fan growing up, you still made it to the polo grounds to watch the Giants play, right? I wasn't a Giant fan. I mean, and I, I, it's hard not to grow up loving baseball and not know who Willie Mays was. Went on the daytime, it, was, it, it wasn't sunny. I didn't even know where the polo ground was, but every, you know, if you were a Yankee fan, you knew where Yankee Stadium was. Right. And uh, I used to come home when I was in the like the third or fourth grade and the games were all televised. They were televised in black and white, as, as you mentioned, but they, uh, I mean, I watched Billy Martin. He made the great catch with the bases loaded uh, when he's playing second base right between, right behind the pitching mound to save the World Series. I think maybe that was, might have been 52 or 53. Three runners ready to lead away. It's a high pop-up. Who's going to get it? Here comes Billy Martin digging hard, and he makes the catch at the last second. How about that? There was a ball that the wind held up. And even though it was just a high pop-up, Billy Martin still had to lunge for the ball. Man, it's been a great series. It still is. Once again, it was one of those games against the Yankee Dodgers World Series. And then when I moved to California after my dad passed away when I was nine and a half, I used to, 55, 56, I used to listen to the Yankee and the World Series on a transistor radio between history and geography. Hi, everybody. This is Bob Wolf on Everett Field in Brooklyn, greeting you for the Gillette Safety Razor Company as the New York Yankees and Brooklyn Dodgers get ready for the opening game of the 1956 World Series. So, um, I mean, that's the way you grew up. Right. If you're a baseball fan as a kid, you either came home if you got out of school early or the game went a little bit longer. Back then, the games only took about two hours and ten minutes. Right. They weren't the four-hour duration type of games we have now. In 1963, at age 17, you signed with the Baltimore Orioles. And two years later, in 1965, at age 19, you make your major league debut at Fenway Park. I came in, and yeah, I mean, there's snow flurries. It's pretty cold. I, I, I had pitched in Aberdeen, South Dakota the year before, so I'm a little bit used to cold weather, but never had that kind of weather in Arizona. Snow flurries. Oh yeah, snow flurries. You know, just before global warming. So, right, yeah. So I hear. And the first guy you ever face in Major League Baseball is Carl Yastrzemski. Yeah, well, I walked him. But I got to the mound, and I came in, and I brought the warm-up ball in. I was so nervous. And Hank Bauer said, uh, hey, uh, how do you feel? I said, well, I've never done this before. I'm a little apprehensive. I said, well, what do I do with this other ball? He said, well, I'll take care of that. You take care of Yastrzemski. So I ended up walking Yaz, and the next hitter was uh, 
uh, Tony Finigliero, who, for anybody that has a good memory or historian of baseball, he was on his way to 500 home runs. That's how good. Oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. So I was nervous. You're just going on instincts, which is, okay, what do you do best? You throw a fastball. So I threw him a high fastball. He swung. I threw him another high fastball. He swung. And then I threw, by accident, threw him a knee-high, low-and-away fastball. And he actually took strike three, and John Flaherty, the home plate umpire, called him out. And then I uh, gave up a broken bat single. So my inherited runner's numbers weren't particularly good uh, in my first game in Fenway Park. In 1966, Frank Robinson joins the Orioles and proceeds to have a career year, which included a home run off Cleveland's Louis Tiant that went completely out of Memorial Stadium. You know, you had, um, you had a mezzanine, then you had an upper deck, and then along the edge of the uh, upper deck, when it hung out over the, the lower bleachers, and we're talking maybe 75, 80 feet, 90 feet. I mean, it was a long, you didn't want to be dropping unless you had a parachute dropping out of that upper deck. It was a long way down to where the, the junior Orioles used to sit and actually about maybe 17, 18 feet higher than the playing surface. So there was a chain link fence that ran all the way to the top of the bleachers so people wouldn't fall out. And he hit it kind of just to the right of that. So he hits the ball out of the stadium. That power from Frank Robinson helped catapult the Orioles to the World Series in 66. And and the crazy thing is, in 1966, at age 20, you finished the season 15 and 10, and you find yourself pitching in Game 2 of the World Series. Sandy Koufax and Jim Palmer are today's starting pitcher. The incomparable Koufax won 27 this year, a National League record for lefties. The youthful Palmer had 15 victories. What did you think when you found out you would be pitching against Sandy Koufax? Yeah, he had a string of about five to seven years. It was as good as, we're talking 280 to 300 and some innings, 44 starts. Uh, I think he pitched maybe wrong, five no-hitters. You know, he was 30, I was 20. The 20-year-old Palmer seems calm enough as he warms up for his first World Series appearance. We had gotten to Los Angeles, and I didn't know they called the American League the Junior League. So when we were there, they uh, wasn't the LA Times, but they had another the LA Herald or whatever it was, uh, junior league uh, loop leaders in town to play Dodgers. Back then, you know, you had the TV show, um, uh, what was it, Laughing? Oh, right, would yeah. You, yeah, would you believe? So on the way out to down Sunset Boulevard, because we stayed at the uh, Continental Hotel that was owned by Gene Autry, and he was actually at the door the night before when we came in. So we went for a workout on Monday, and we're going to the game on the first game, I think, on Tuesday. And instead of a real estate, real estate sign saying three-bedroom house, two-baths, pool, it said, would you believe Dodgers four straight? So the game starts. Frank and Brooks hit home runs in the first inning. And again, I'm pitching the next day. And I'm hoping that I pitch well because that's the only way you're going to beat Koufax. And then the next day, you know, afternoon game, hazy. It's sunny, but it's hazy. And I think we go into the fifth inning, nothing, nothing. And Willie Davis routine fly ball drops it. He didn't have to run. He just came in a couple of steps, dropped it. The next ball, he, almost the identical fly ball. He drops that one, picks it up, throws it in the dugout. We get like four unearned runs. I think the Dodgers make six errors in that game. Wow. Um, Sandy, I mean, he's 30, still threw exceptionally hard. I hit off him uh, probably in the second or third inning. And Andy Etcherbaron had a little bit of a kind of wrapped the hat a little bit. Well, that's not a good thing to do against Koufax. So, he throws him a high fastball, and he thinks about swinging, but he can't get the bat going. Throws him another one, throws him another one. So three high fastballs, 
And I'm walking up to home plate and I said, radio balls. He said, what? I said, you, you can hear him, but you couldn't quite see him. So Koufax throws me in the first fastball. And, you know, I won my first game in the big leagues with a home run off Jim Bowden. I could hit a little bit. I was a good hitter in high school. But he throws me in a side fastball and I'm thinking about swinging at it. And I used to use Frank Robinson's 35-ounce bat and I'm going, hmm. And the ball's in, in Roseboro's glove. So now he throws me the next pitch and it looks exactly like the high fastball. So I go to swing at it and it's a curveball and it ends up on the ground. I mean, it goes straight down. So now I go, things aren't looking real good. (laughs) In two pitches, I saw what uh, anybody that tried to hit off of Sandy Koufax had to deal with. You had a fastball that started in the lobby and ended up on the third floor. You had a a curveball that looked like it was starting in the lobby and ended up in the lower basement. And that's why Sandy Koufax was Sandy Koufax. Easy wind-up, ball had a tremendous finish. Pretty surreal. And to be so young and get a complete game four-hit shutout for the win. Palmer's triumph made history because at nine days short of his 21st birthday, he's the youngest pitcher ever to achieve a shutout in a World Series. First World Championship, too. Um, And you mentioned Memorial Stadium. That's your home ballpark on East 33rd, where the Orioles played from 54 to 91. In a very similar way to Ebbets Field, Memorial Stadium was right smack dab at a neighborhood. Do you remember the route, first of all, that you would take to the ballpark? How would you get there? Well, it was on 33rd Street, so I'd just come down Charles Street. I used to ride in with Dick Hall, who went to Swarthmore, one of the great control pitchers of all time. And he would, you know, he also studied geology. He'd tell me about the rock formations. So I learned a lot. You know, <laughs> Dick was much smarter than I was. I tried to stand next to him in the outfield. What were some of the unique characteristics of Memorial Stadium that stood out to you? You had to park next to people. So if the car behind you didn't leave right away, you weren't leaving. It wasn't like normal parking lots. You were sardined in there. I mean, 54, I think 54,000 people. Um, I mean, I remember going to see the Colts and the Packers play maybe in 66, $5.75 for the championship ticket. Wow. Sitting on the yard line. You know, they didn't have a lot of box seats. I think they had like 8,000 box seats, but you had the bleachers, you had the upper deck. It was 309 down the line. So if you're, when it opened, and I wasn't there when you opened, they had a scoreboard way out there. I think that's where the fences actually were. So a lot of triples were hit, and then they brought the fences in. So you had 309 with about a 15, 16, 17 foot wall down the lines, kind of went out. There was a 360 sign, and then you kind of got to where the old outfield used to be, and that's where the bullpens were. They were 387. They brought them into 378 along the line. 408, I think, the center field. Bullpens were visiting, was out right center, left center with the Oriole bullpen. And the great thing is they had the scoreboard, and to the right of that, you had row houses. It was a pretty good place to pitch in April because the row houses were partly brick and white. And I remember when Rick Dempsey <laughs> got traded. Of course, you know, we had 420 game winners in 71, three in 70. And when Rick came over from the Yankees in 76, he said, you can't see, we need to, we need to get a hitting background out there. And, and somebody said, Demper, don't you know the Orioles win with pitching? So until the, until the trees grew in, probably in the middle of May, it was a pretty good place to pitch. Well, yeah, I often and, uh, think about like how great it would be to be a kid and live in one of those houses and kind of look out your window and, you know, do your homework, but watch a game. You could, you could uh, hear, we did an ad uh, once where we were actually in a trailer and we would walk at the knock on people's doors and say, Hey, where have you been? Where we miss you at the ballpark. And, um, Paul Blair was really shy. So we're in the trailer listening and he walks up the driveway and the guy's actually, I think he must've had some kind of a d- disease in one of his trees and you can hear him with a hammer. He's kind of 
chiseling out the, the, the disease and it's going to pass it or do something like that. And Paul says, hey, where have you been? We miss you at the ballpark. And the guy goes, used to live on 39th Street. Couldn't find a parking spot. Now I live on 34th Street. Can't find a parking spot. I'm never going to the ballpark. So <laughs> part of the intimacy of actually living in a neighborhood, I used to have a little Volkswagen that I bought up in Mannheim for $1,375 after we won the World Series. So I could go do Little League banquets and stuff for the Orioles and make $25 a night. I used to try to get that Volkswagen and people would park their car just where you didn't have enough room to park in between. On game day, I mean, everything about game day is great, except street parking on game day, uh, never, never easy, especially near the stadium. Okay, so look, after making it to the World Series in 1969, but losing to a very good Mets team, the Orioles are right back in 1970, this time squaring off against the Cincinnati Reds. Game one of the 1970 World Series. Cincinnati is where it's at, the skyline over the Ohio. And more than 50,000 fans converge in a breathtaking baseball plant, Riverfront Stadium. Johnny Bench, Pete Rose, Tony Perez. Bench, I think, hit 45 home runs. Perez hit 40. They had a nice ball club. They just weren't quite as good as us, and they didn't quite have the same type of pitching. The whole 70 season started in spring training when Earl Weaver said we're not going to... uh, you know, because we had a good club. We had 109 games in 1969, 108 and 70. So we had a good ball club. And, and Earl was like a jockey coming down the stretch at Pimlico in the middle of the Preakness. He had the whip out early. People say this is fun. The further I can get away from somebody like that, the happier I'm going to be. He wanted to get to the World Series. He wanted to win the World Series. To be honest, they did not have, they didn't have the pitching that the Mets had. They didn't have the good fortune that the Mets had. They didn't have the umpires on their side like the Mets had. <laughs> it just seemed like every call in 69 went against us. And when you're playing a good ball club in a turned out a five-game series, that's all you need. You win game one at Riverfront Stadium, and I look back and think, man, you just missed pitching at Crosley Field, the Reds' former home. By just a few months, they had moved into Riverfront couple months earlier uh that would have been fun you know to be at crosley field well it would have been but you know i played in the all-star game my first all-star game is uh, you know i actually started against Seaver. this is reds country riverfront stadium home of the cincinnati reds and the 1970 all-star american league pitchers jim palmer sam mcdowell and jim perry are devastated I got to pitch three shutout innings. That's the game where Fossey gets run over by Pete Rose. And oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So Fast forward game one of the 1970 World Series, and you're called on to pitch. Again, I pitched game one for some reason. I mean, Cuellar and McNally won 23 and 24 games, but I think Earl thought right-handers matched up better against the Reds in 70 than, than lefties. Now, I, I kind of, in retrospect, Mike won 139 games in seven years, and Mac won 20 games four straight years, so in that stretch. so But I started the first game, and I mean, I gave up three runs early. But then we came back. Elrod Hendricks hit the only ball I ever saw him hit the left field in that World Series, right down over the third base bag. Short series, as it turned out, five games, a lot of things can happen. It's your second world championship. And then in uh, in 1971, you're elected again to the uh, American League All-Star team. The game is at Tiger Stadium. The AL's trying to win for the first time, I think, since 1962. It's the third inning, and Reggie Jackson steps up to the plate to face Pirates pitcher Doc Ellis. Reggie Jackson, batting 272 for Oakland, 17 homers. He's bounced back this year, 41 runs batted in. A fine all-around player. Good defensive outfielder, base runner, and thrower. And, of course, real power, especially for this ballpark, of the strike joint. There's a long drive. That one is going way up. It is off the roof. 
That hit the transformer up there. A tremendous smash. Only eight players have hit the ball over the roof here in Detroit. And Jackson nearly did it then out of the ballpark. You, I believe, were warming up at the time. Is that right? Yeah, you know, it's what's so interesting about that game. Well, a lot of things about that game. I think everybody, there were six home runs. They're all hit by Hall of Famers. Frank hit a home line drive home run off uh, Doc Ellis. Bench hit one. Clemente hit one. Aaron hit one. Maybe Killebrew hit one. I mean, some pretty great hitters. But when you're warming up, throwing a pitch and turn around, trying to time my warm-ups to, to also watch Doc pitch to, to Reggie, and there's complete silence in the ballpark because everybody's watching how far the ball's going. And it does go up over the second roof, and it does hit the transformer where it is going out of the ballpark. Now, I mean, I threw a pretty good curveball to Willie Horton once, and he got out of his front foot and hit a line drive in the upper deck in left field. But right field, the pavilion's even higher. The roof is higher, and he just scorched that ball. But the one thing, the difference, the American League wasn't winning a lot of All-Star games back then. And we did win that game, I think, 6-4, to four, but the game was two hours and eight minutes. Wow, two hours and eight minutes. Uh, that would never happen today. They ran a game uh, a couple weekends ago, the, the sixth game of the 71 World Series when we lost to the Pirates. And I gave up a run of the first, run of the third, and then shut them out, I guess, for the next five or six. We won in the 10th inning. And a friend of mine called me and he said, yeah, that was a tutorial on not taking a lot of time between pitches. And I said, well, I already faced them once. I already knew what I wanted to do. I already knew what they probably knew what they wanted to do. They didn't wear batting gloves. I mean, all you got to do is watch games now. And guys come up to home plate. They got their batting gloves. They adjust them, grab the bat. You throw the ball one. You don't even swing. You step out of the box. Yeah, adjust again and then do that every pitch. And they get ready to hit again. Now, they don't do that when they're taking batting practice. Right. They allow to do it. It's, it's kind of a ritual. Uh, Mike Hargrove was a human rain delay at home plate. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You mentioned the 71 World Series. Uh, what do you remember about facing Clemente? I mean, you know, he tripled off me, hit a home run in that game six, 358 feet, but it was just poked into right field. But that's the way you hit much shorter down the lines at the Memorial Stadium. But he's a five-tool player, maybe four and a half. Wasn't known as a home run guy. But if you go back to that 71 All-Star game, I still remember Mickey Lowell, was quite a pitcher. One year he pitched 376 innings. And uh, he threw him a hanging curveball. He got out on his front foot and hit it over the 415 sign in the upper deck in right field. One out, nobody on. Lemeny had 10 hits in a doubleheader last August against the Dodgers. A lot of hits in one day. Three and one to him. It's a high fly in the deep right center. Amos Otis way back. That one's going, and it is gone. Almost in the same spot as Johnny Benchy in the upper deck in right center. He could hit. And he could hit pretty much any pitch you threw. And I think because he played in Pittsburgh, he didn't play in New York, he didn't play in Los Angeles. We know Jackie Robinson changed the fortunes if you were an African-American player. But if you read the book Clemente, you realize that Latin players that came up through the system, I think Roberto actually started with the Dodgers. When you read his biography, it's a pretty interesting read. But he ended up being one of the great players of all time. On October 6th, 1991, The Baltimore Orioles played their final game at Memorial Stadium. More than 100 Orioles from the past and present were there that day to say their final goodbyes. Music from the movie Field of Dreams started to play. And out of the dugout, one by one, the all-time great Orioles started to file out. Brooks Robinson, in uniform, wearing number five, heads to third base. Frank Robinson, right behind him, to right field. Boog Powell to first base. Jim Palmer, you head to the pitcher's mound. 
Don Baylor, Rick Dempsey goes behind the plate, Davey Johnson and Bobby Gritch out to second, Louis Aparicio to short, Lee May, Pat Kelly, Elrod Hendricks, Dave McNally. I mean, one by one, these guys are coming out of the dugout in uniform. There is not a dry eye in Memorial Stadium as fans who have celebrated these players and their accomplishments the last nearly 40 years. Mike Cuellar, Mike Flanagan, Dennis Martinez, Scott McGregor, Mel Pappas, Steve Barber, Cal Ripken Jr. And then finally, your Hall of Fame manager, Earl Weaver, walks out. Looking back at that footage, Jim, I still get goosebumps. Yeah, it was a memorable moment. And I think anybody that lived in Baltimore, it wasn't just the Orioles, it was the Colts. Chuck Thompson, uh, the late Chuck Thompson, it's also memorialized in the baseball wing of the Hall of Fame. He did the Colt games, did the Oriole games. When you talk about Memorial Stadium, you talk about a stadium that's built a memorial of, of people that died in, in World War II. You, you think of the Colts. And, and again, Sunday in Baltimore, in Memorial Stadium, watching the Colts play. I mean, when we won that 66 World Series, we came back, get our stuff the next day, and the Colts were working out. And I was watching Johnny Unitas, who eventually I would get to know and play golf with and all that, throwing 15-yard uh, outs to Raymond Berry, who was one of the great receivers of all time. And it was like a 95-mile-per-hour fastball low and away. I mean, the ball was already in the air, and Raymond hadn't even made his cut. So you got to see, and if you lived in Baltimore back then, if you wanted to go to bowling, you'd go to Johnny Unitas's uh, bowling alley, or if you wanted... Brooks had a restaurant, Brooks Robinson. A lot of the guys, Gino Marchetti started Gino's. Again, an all-pro Hall of Fame lineman. So, yeah, they just had a marvelous ball. I still run into Lenny Moore, who's got to be, I don't know, in his mid-80s now. So, yeah, Baltimore and Memorial Stadium was more than just the Orioles. In fact, we were kind of, I think we kind of learned, earned our spurs just trying to maybe be a little bit like a lot of the Colts who lived in that community, became part of that community and really made a difference in that community. Yeah, and it was great to see some of the Colts included in that final celebration at Memorial Stadium in 1991. And I did notice watching the video today that when you walked out to the mound and that music is playing, you fought back tears. I mean, it was it was a special moment, not just for the fans, but uh, for the players. It, yeah, it was a special moment because... I mean, here I am at 76. My mind is still pretty intact. But at the end of the day, those are the kind of moments. And I think all you got to do is go to Cooperstown for the induction and you realize how people just love baseball or love their football. And in the case of the Colts, who would eventually move to Indianapolis. And now, of course, you have the Ravens, which they get in Baltimore. Baltimore, it was always been a nice sports town and Memorial Stadium had so much to do with that. Yeah, it really was a special ballpark. And those that uh, that were there to experience it between 54 and 91, uh, we'll never forget it. Thank you so much, Jim Palmer, for taking a couple minutes today. What a career. 268 wins, three Cy Young Awards, six World Series that you appeared in, three that you won, uh, inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1990. Great player, great friend, great broadcaster. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your memories with us today. Oh, uh, You're welcome. My pleasure. All the best to you and your family, Jim, and look forward to hearing you back on the air in the next couple months. Okay. Let's hope. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I, I can remember as a kid being in the backyard of my house in Castleberry, Florida, setting up a little pitching mound on our stiff St. Augustine grass and then trying my best to emulate Jim Palmer's delivery. Uh, yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast. Really appreciate it. This podcast is a complete labor of love, and so I'm thankful that uh, you've taken the time to join me today. A reminder, if you haven't already, you can subscribe for free on the podcast platform of your choice, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, whatever, so you don't ever miss an episode. Next week on the Lost Ballparks podcast, 
Former ESPN SportsCenter anchor Kenny May. What's happening? Kenny grew up in Seattle in the 1960s and was at Six Stadium for the one and only season of the Seattle Pilots. I probably went to like 25, 30 games. That's a lot of... That's a lot of games for anybody, especially if you're nine years old. It was a pretty crazy ride for the people of Seattle who found out in 1968 that they were getting a team, enjoying the euphoria of having a team for one season, and then a year later losing them to Milwaukee. And of course, 1969 was a landmark year in American history for many other reasons. Seattle Pilots, Six Stadium, Kenny made all that coming up next week on Lost Ballparks. See you then.